You know, when kids think of camp, they think of s'mores, crafting, swimming. When you talk to Cambridge parents about camp, they seem stressed. There's so many options. There are wait lists. They all have different registration deadlines. So if you're a parent out there and you've been either throwing up your hands or struggling to find the right camp for your kid, I have a little insider info for you. The Outback Summer Program at the Mariah L. Baldwin Community Center is a high-quality summer experience for families who value creativity, culture, and community. Outback is for rising kindergartners through rising sixth graders, and they even have an extended day option. Your kid's going to do sports, ceramics, visual arts, performing arts, but they're also going to be spending a ton of time outside, whether they're just running through a sprinkler or enjoying weekly trips to Singing Beach in Manchester by the sea. That's in addition to all the other awesome field trips and special events throughout the summer. I'm very familiar with this camp. I actually have a lot of friends who send their kids there because it's right in my neighborhood. Everyone loves it. Outback currently has openings or very small wait lists throughout the summer, especially for students who will be entering kindergarten in the fall. Anyone interested in enrolling can learn more on their website, agassiz.org, that's A-G-A-S-S-I-Z.org, or by contacting registration at agassiz.org. Stop stressing and sign up. Hi all, I'm Lee Stabert, and welcome back to Explain Boston to Me. Let's do our quick refresher. In August 2022, I moved with my family from Philadelphia, my hometown, to the Boston area. I've always prided myself on being the person who knows all the hyperlocal minutiae. I know Devontae Smith is the most snappily dressed player in the NFL. Something I do not know is how his tailor gets those suits quite so slim. Do yourself a favor, do a quick little Google image search. You'll be delighted. And I know that when you sit down at a bar in Philly and order a citywide special, you will be handed a shot of Jim Beam and a can of PBR. There are variations on that shot in a beer formula throughout the city, but the original can still be had at Bob and Barbara's on South Street, one of the greatest dive bars in the universe. I want that kind of deep knowledge in my new home. I want to know why they call every major intersection a square, even though pretty much none of them are actually squares. And I want to know if, after Bill Belichick is fired, which might be imminent, they will find a bunker full of sweatshirt sleeves. So I'm asking for help. I'm finding people to explain these things to me. I'll never be a native, but I just might learn to speak the language. The podcast had a big week. Uh, We were featured in the Boston Globe's Camberville newsletter, which brought in a ton of new listeners. Hello, welcome. In another bit of news, I have found someone to talk with me about the development of the seaport. You newbies might not be aware, but the seaport is a topic that haunts this podcast. It pops up constantly, often out of nowhere, and I'm excited to get to the bottom of it. That should be coming down the pike in a few weeks. Before we get to this week's episode, I have a request. It is the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. You guys love Thanksgiving, right? Like pilgrims and shit. Um, You might even be in the car right now, traveling for the holiday. Many folks will be gathering with family and friends. It's a dark time in the world. Tensions are running high. There might be certain topics you're hoping to keep off the table. To that end, I have a suggestion for an alternate topic. This podcast. Tell your nieces. Tell your drunk uncles. Tell your mom's college friend, Betsy. Spread the word to all of the Beantown curious people in your life. I will be eternally grateful. Thankful, one might even say. Okay, here we go. This topic has been on my list since day one, the 2004 Red Sox, Curse Breakers Extraordinaire. To speak to me of this legendary tale of triumph over evil, aka the Yankees, 
I'm joined by Tyler Rotman, a lifelong Red Sox fan who showed up with about six pages of typed up notes. He really wanted to get it right, and if he left anything out, just assume he said it and I cut it. I hope this conversation gives you the warm and fuzzies as you enjoy your holiday break. And if you're my Yankees fan husband, I hope you can at least make it through. So please introduce yourself and give me a brief rundown on what you do and why you're qualified to speak on Boston culture and on this topic, the 2004 Red Sox in particular. Well, thank you very much for having me on here in my day job. I basically work for a a marketing tech company, affiliate marketing company. And then one month out of the year, we have a seasonal family business as well. And, you know, I do feel a lot of pressure to speak on this because in the grand scheme of the Red Sox, I didn't suffer through every moment of suffering. But, you know, my dad grew up in Brighton. His father, who, you know, passed away in the 50s, was a kosher butcher in Brighton. My mom's family, who wound up really settling in more of the Albany, New York area. The generation before that, a lot of them were in Southie. And I grew up right in Arlington. Please mention your family's seasonal business because you just mentioned you had a grandfather who was a kosher butcher, but now you, I know you sell Christmas trees. Oh, well, I appreciate that. But yes, my dad, since technically his friend's dad started it in 1969, Boston Christmas Trees, That's not that wasn't the name then. And then my dad took over in like 72, and it's still there, still there to this day. So, you know, we all have our day jobs. And then one month out of the year, we're all there, nights and weekends. But it's great because a lot of the people who work there I only see them that month. And a lot of the older guys especially kind of feel like uncles. They sort of feel like family. And I won't see them the rest of the year. And then you're with them that month. And, you know, when it's cold and rainy, it's not always as fun. But most days are pretty are pretty fun. Well, tis the season. People should, you know, are about to, I guess, buy Christmas trees. People yeah. who buy Christmas trees. So Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you sort of touched on this, but one of the most important things we need to, I think, start with is just your age, because I do need to know the extent of your suffering before we get into the 2004 Red Sox. I know. And I, I felt, you know, for those who might hear this, who are older and suffered more, you know, I feel kind of the, the weight and there's the responsibility to do it justice because it is true. I'm 37. So when they won it in 2004, I just turned 18. So for me, the big one was 2003, which of course we can get more into later. But 2003, mm-hmm. for people of my generation, was kind of the big loss. Um, prior to that, 1986, when the famous Bill Buckner game, which I'm happy to get into if you'd like, that was the big one of the 80s. I think I was 29 days old when that happened. <laughs> I had a woman on who, um, Susan, who came on to talk about the Boston Pops, and somehow she ended up talking about the Red Sox. I think she's in her 70s, and she just still feels like the Red Sox always lose. It's like, it's in her DNA. It was like, it was encoded at a young age and she can't shake it. Yeah, you know, I I feel like when I grew up, and it's funny, I feel like everything that with the Red Sox and it's all with a caveat of, I understand, it's just sports. There's bigger things going on in the world. Of course, there's larger priorities, but it's kind of fun sometimes, you know, turn that off for an hour and (laughs) pretend it's, you know, 2003, 2004, when that was your, biggest thing in life at that age but it's true since then you know they've they've won a lot but growing up in the 90s there was no expectation I think the expectation is such a big thing it's like they're not going to win so it was more fun to follow Ken Griffey Jr. and Mark McGuire with the home run chase (laughs) and then it started to shift around I would say 2001 where the expectations shifted and it was hey this team's actually not bad we might have a shot here and then you kind of get better and you lose and you better and you lose and it kind of just built to the 2004 season, which I'm happy to give the full story if, if need be, because the buildup is 
it's the kind of thing I know it's cliche, but if someone wrote that in a movie script, it would be okay. That's too perfect. That's we can't use that. I would say other than maybe the 1980 Olympic hockey game where the U.S. beat the Soviet Union, in terms of the story, not just the mm-hmm. game, but the build up and the, the meaning behind it. I'm sure there's plenty of other games in Europe or other parts of the world that had more meaning, but the story feels fake and it actually happened. Yeah. So when I always send a discussion guide to guests, but before I even send the discussion guide to you, you said, oh, I have some notes. And you sent me like a really long email with all these bullet points of like, this is what happened with Babe Ruth. And then this happened and then this happened. So I... I feel like there's probably a future Red Sox episode that can get into some of that, but I do just want to mention some of the big points, which is just that the Red Sox had not won since 2018, and then they won in 2000, not 2018. The Red Sox had not won since 1918. So after 1918, they also won in 2018. But yeah, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. Give me, give me a little, uh, give me like the bullet points from 1918 until 2004. Sure, if if it's okay, I might do a quick like they do in movies or books where they give you a sneak preview of the end and then they say six months earlier, or in this case, 86 <laughs> years earlier, but I'll just do a quick synopsis. So regardless of it being Red Sox, regardless of it being Yankees, just a quick snippet of the 2004, why that was so big. So it's a best of seven series, first team to win four games. Red Sox were down 3-0. These are the Cliff Notes <laughs> version. No team in baseball history. Not in the World Series, in the ALC. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. That's... And I remember when they did win, there was some nervousness of, man, they better pull it off. (laughs) So no team in the history, you know, over 100 years in the history of baseball had ever come down from 03. That's one big thing. Point two was, you know, there's so much hyperbole these days with greatest of all time, greatest this, greatest that. But statistically, in a quantifiable, (laughs) measurable statistic, the Red Sox were in the last inning of the last game, losing against statistically the best playoff pitcher in the history of baseball. So you're down 0-3. No one's ever done that. You're against the best pitcher in the playoffs of all time. No one's done that. And it's your rival who knocked you you out the year before. So then to rewind, the history that build up to that is between, you know, 1919 and 2003, the Yankees had won it 26 times. <laughs> and the Red Sox. I'm married to a zero. Yankees fan, by the way. I'm well, married to a Yankees fan. And he's actually been joking a lot. Like, I, he's very supportive of the podcast. He's like, I don't know if I'll be able to listen yeah. to this. I know. And I, I sometimes think if I were a Yankees fan, even if a Red Sox fan gloated about this, I'd still prob- probably think, yeah, but we're still way ahead of you. But yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. As any longtime listeners will know, I've moved twice in the last two years. Moving stinks, especially here in the Boston area, where, as we've established, most people move on the same day and you run the risk of storing your U-Haul and ending up on the local news. How embarrassing. But it doesn't have to be so hard. Let Premium Q do it for you. This local moving company can not only load and unload the truck, they also offer packing services. If you've never had someone pack for you, especially if you have young kids, you are missing out. If you're new to town, figuring out all the strange things about Boston should be your priority, not wrapping each wine glass individually in little layers of paper. Reach out to Premium Q now and for a limited time, get free moving boxes and 10% off your upcoming move. To get a quote, head to moversinboston.com or call 781-730-6180. Now you can focus more on your new home and less on the logistics of packing and schlepping. I, I I think being a Yankees fan is like deeply stupid. It's like being a Cowboys fan, being a Patriots fan. 
though I guess current iteration of Patriots, I don't know. It's easy. It's easy to root for the perennial winner. You know, it doesn't require any blood. And that to me isn't as it isn't as good. Yeah. And I, I like to tell myself I like to tell myself that. No, I, I know what you mean. And another, you know, this is just my personal connection, but I feel like so many people, regardless, any city, any country, have their own little personal story. My my grandmother, who lived outside of Albany, she was a diehard Yankees fan, and we would joke that you know she had a crush on their manager, <laughs> Joe Torre. Um, so that was you know it's your grandma, you love her, she loves you, but even she would kind of give us crap about how the her team would always win and <laughs> our team would never win, and and it's true. But the expectation as a kid was, well, they're not going to win, so whatever. But yeah, so for eighty you know six years, the Yankees won it twenty six times, Red Sox only make it even two the World Series five times and win it zero. <laughs> and along the way, there's the Red Sox and Yankees had a one game playoff game one year in the 70s. And the Yankees won that and go on to win it. 1986, of course, the big Bill Buckner year. It's against New York, but the New York Mets. Red Sox are one strike, one strike away from breaking the curse. Their star pitcher is Roger Clemens, who later became a villain on the Yankees. And, mm-hmm. and they lose. And then from 1986 to 2004, they never actually even made it back to the World Series. So that's kind of the Cliff Notes version, but it's just the rivalry of one team always, always winning. And Boston, New York, the proximity, culture, you know, Irish Italian food, we're better, you're better, big brother, little brother, all those little nuances and little quirks that exist outside of sports. So now we have to talk about 2003. Yeah. Which, as I was preparing for this podcast, I did not really realize how terrible that was for Red Sox fans and how that really did set the stage. So tell me about the 2003 playoffs. Sure. So I remember 2001, they acquired Manny Ramirez, who was this, as a kid, he was my favorite player even before he was on the Red Sox. So that was like, okay, they're getting pretty good now. They have Pedro Martinez, who, again, statistically, quantifiably, in 1999 and 2000, some people say had the best year a pitcher has ever had. So you have Pedro, you have Manny, you have Nomar Garcia Parra, who was still good at that time. And in 2001, they have all these injuries. I believe the three of them never actually played in the same game that season because one person would be injured. 2002, they're good, but they kind of fizzle. 2003, they're really good. They had Bill Miller, who won the batting title. They had Manny. They're really good, and they're beating the Yankees in the regular season. And there was a game during the season where there was, you know, a fight Pedro threw at one of the players. You know, I hate to say it, and I'm sure a lot of people would disagree, but in that fight, being a Red Sox fan, I remember in terms of karma points, kind of feeling like ah, Pedro did kind of throw at the guy. And then their older manager, Don Zimmer, kind of ran at him and he threw him down. And they say he didn't throw him. I remember in my brain thinking from a karma perspective, eh, I feel like the Red Sox were a little bit in the wrong with that fight. And then another fight ensued afterwards. But there was the expectation of this team kind of has something. There might be But things were chippy. Things were already chippy with the Yankees. Yeah. And it wasn't, it didn't have the loser mentality. Like we hadn't won yet, but it was like, there's actually something here. This actually might might change. And then you finally, you know, fast forward to the playoffs, the best of seven series to go to the World Series. The Red Sox are down three two. They get to three three. So it's Game seven. And this is, they were confident this year they had something and they were winning five to two in the eighth inning. You're almost there. Pedro is pitching the star pitcher. And that's a whole, there could be a whole other podcast. Was he, did, was he kept, did he start game seven and they kept him in? Exactly. Exactly. Okay. That could be almost its own thing. And arguably the manager <laughs> got fired for keeping him in. 
So in the eighth inning, it's five to two. There were all these stats on, hey, once Pedro gets over 100 pitches, his stats fall off a cliff. And they went out to visit. They kept him in. I believe they went out to visit again to talk to him, for the coach to talk to him. And they kept him in. Now, a lot of people might disagree with me on this. But in retrospect, long story short, he blows the lead. But we'll get to that. I do remember in the moment thinking, I know he's been in the game this long. But it's Pedro. I remember in the time... Actually, sort of agreeing with the call, as much as a lot of people may not agree with that. But of course, it doesn't work out. We're, I think, five outs away from going to the World Series, up by three. Hideki Matsui gets a hit. Jorge Posada gets a hit. It goes to extra innings. And Tim Wakefield, who sadly just just passed away about a month or two ago, he lets up the walk-off home run. So it was kind of a game where it's like, I wish we just lost 10 nothing instead of having the lead and... You know, having the squad and being that close. So that was kind of the, the, the buildup in 2003. But there was that fight game. There was the playoff game. There was, we kind of had it. We really thought that was the one. And then he leaves Pedro in, lets up the lead. They lose in extra innings. And I mean, so from hearing my that as a sports fan, like game seven up extra innings, I feel physically ill. Yeah. Like I, yeah. <laughs> sometimes you wonder like, why did we decide oh. to care about this and put ourselves through excruciating pain? I mean, I always, it's funny because last night there's this like image that keeps, the only reason I'm ever on Twitter now is for sports. And there's this image that pings around all the time, mostly with the Eagles where it's like, this little graph. And at the beginning it says, I'm so excited to watch my favorite football team. And then the middle section is I want to die. Yeah. And then the last little section is we won. Yeah. You know, it's funny. Cause I kind of laugh, you know, full transparency, you know, I don't really watch as much these days as I did in my diehard days. For me, there was a big shift. Once the players started becoming younger than me, that was mm-hmm. so mental. <laughs> that was weird for me, but, but it's true. I look back at how much, how invested I was then. Okay. So we go into 2004. Were there any ch- personnel changes? Something I know is they hired Terry Francona, yep. former Phillies manager. Love Terry Francona. Yep. Any other personnel changes that made this 2004 team different from the 2003 team that had lost? Yeah. So the 2003 team loses, like you said. Unfortunately, the manager, Grady Little, is let go. So Terry Francona is hired. But they still have the core of that really good team. And, and like I mentioned, even though they lost in 2003, both teams were so good that there was kind of just this feeling. And it's easy to say it now because it happened. but of there's going to be a rematch. It's just going to happen. We just need to be that little bit better. So like the 2003 team had added David Ortiz, who wasn't a star at the time. He became that in 2003. Before 2004, they had Kurt Schilling, who was a pitcher who had actually beat the Yankees in 2001, which again, people might hate me for this, but that was probably the one World Series where I was kind of okay with the Yankees winning because it was just after September 11th. I also have feelings about Kurt Schilling, but that's a whole other podcast. Right. So well. at the time, those weren't really as much in the uh, in the news. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe a little bit, but, but I he was, was also on the he was on the '93 Phillies. Was that's it '93 true. Phillies. He yeah. played for the Phillies. He was yeah. a huge star for the Phillies With, for years. Um, Lenny Dykstra, John Kruk. They lost. Yeah, that's to the, the '93 team. Yeah. And how old was he? He must have been old then. Probably twenties, I would think. At that, I don't know exactly. Right, because 2004 is 11 years later. Yeah. He was anyway. sort of an elder statesman by the time 2004 rolled around. So I would oh, say one of the first times. I usually don't Google, but now I'm very curious. Okay. He I'm going to guess he was played for the Philly. He played for the Phillies from 92 to 2000. I mean, he was the stalwart. He was the ace for so many years. Wow. He played for the Diamondbacks from 2000 to 2003 and then came to the Red Sox from 04 to 07. He had a very long career. Yeah. 
Wow. I remember, I think he had a shoulder issue too. I think it was called like a slap tear. It's an acronym for something. I only know that because I also had a slap tear and the doctor said, this is what Kurt Schilling had. He came back without surgery. You can do it. <laughs> yeah, that Phillies team. Yeah, uh, against the Blue Jays. John Kruk. I remember yeah, that team. Oh, yeah. I'll talk about Joe Carter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Sorry. No, it's but fine. It's true, though. So 2004, it felt like we just need some additional piece. And I, I would say offhand, Kurt Schilling was kind of the big addition to that team. A lot of the core was the same. Pedro, Derek Lowe, you know, Manny, David Ortiz. They did add uh, Keith Folk. So the core was the same, but it was like, hey, we got that extra 5 6 8%, 8% better going into 2004. Okay, so it's 2004. Anything of note in the regular season, or can we skip to the ALCS? So I, I would say there is an important time in the season. So earlier I'd mentioned, you know, 2003, that fight game. You know, I hate to say it, but I kind of felt like eh, Pedro on the Red Sox was kind of in the wrong there. And he kind of threw down their their older manager and then eh, but 2004 there was a similar fight game where it felt like the karma was shifting <laughs> because i remember in that one a pitcher on the red Sox, bronson arroyo hits a rod but it, it wasn't like in the head it was in the elbow and in that one i thought a rod kind of looked like looks like the bad guy and jason veritek they get into a fight there's a whole fight a year later so 2004 there's also kind of this big fight game which whatever but that same game, the Yankees pitcher that I mentioned, Mariano Rivera, who is, I would say, without argument, the best closing pitcher in history. I would say there's no, pretty much no argument. In that same game, that that fight happens, it's a regular season. The Red Sox, Bill Miller hits a walk-off home run against Rivera. So it's kind of this, mm. and this is so embarrassing to admit, how you know things in day-to-day life I might forget. I still remember that was July 24th, 2004. <laughs> I still remember the Red Sox won it on October 27th, 2004. I still text my brother and my cousin who, like me, don't follow it as closely these days, but we still say happy Bill Miller Day on July 24th, even though you know, they're in their 40s, I'm um, you know, 37. <laughs> so that game, I would say in terms of regular season, is a, is a big one because yeah. we, we got to Rivera, hit the walk-off home run. There was the fight, but from a it felt like ah, the Yankees looked like more at the bad guys in that fight. I would say that's the most pivotal moment for the 2004 regular season. So going into this 2004 ALCS, which Yankees do you hate the most? You know, it's a good question. I feel like people might want to hear A-Rod, but you have to remember that this was his first season with the Yankees. So when the Red Sox signed a huge contract for Manny Ramirez in 2001, a-Rod also signed that with the Rangers. He was there for three years. There was this whole other, there's a, there's a whole documentary about how after 2003, he was supposed to go to the Red Sox. The contract was almost signed. And then he went to the Yankees. And this is the best player probably in the world at the, at the time. Right. And then him and Jeter with their uneasy marriage and yeah, all of that. Yeah. yeah. But I would say to answer your question, it kind of has to be Jeter. Now, he does have kind of a respectable factor, but... He just gets these little bloop singles that you'd almost <laughs> rather someone hit a bomb. It's like, okay, we can't do anything about that. But he hit these little just bloop, little inside out swing bloop singles to, you know, right center. It's like, how is he beating us with these little? And even though he certainly was respectable, I would say he was, you know, the quote unquote most hated just because uh, he was just did everything perfectly. And he joined the team right when they went on their dynasty run from. 1996 to 2000, where they won it every year except one. So I'd have to, I'd have to go with Jeter. 
So we've touched on the fact that the Red Sox go down 0-3, they come back, they win. What are a few of the pivotal moments in this series that stick with you? Yeah, so if you haven't seen it, there's you know, ESPN has their documentary series, 30 for 30. There's mm-hmm. an entire documentary called Four Days in October, just about the four days that they come back. And again, I found myself <laughs> a little embarrassed how worked up I am. Just, you know, again, it's sports. I know there's bigger things in the world, but it's still my brother, my cousin. We still have so much fun just talking about this. So, and again, there's the buildup from 2003 where there's going to be this rematch and this is going to be the, here, here it is. We finally made it. And then, okay, Yankees win game one. Okay, whatever. Yankees win. Was that in New York? Did they have home field advantage? Um, yes, yes. So games one and two would have been in New York. I think Mike Messina pitched game one. He, like the Red Sox, didn't even get a hit until I think the sixth or seventh inning. They actually had a decent comeback, but the Yankees won game one. And then the Yankees win game two. Now, being down 2-0 isn't the end of the world, but from a, if you're a Red Sox fan or player, you also just used up your two best pitchers. You just used up mm-hmm. Schilling and Pedro. So now, okay, you're down 2-0, but shoot, we just got through our best our best pitchers. So going into game three, you're kind of thinking, okay, we have, we're, we're going to win this. It's a must win. It's yeah. a must win. Like, come on. This team's too good. This isn't going to happen. And they lose 19-8. to And the Yankees have the <laughs> most, I think it's the most hits or most runs they've ever had in a playoff game ever. Yeah, most hits they've ever had. Uh, most hits, actually, sorry, in any playoff game to that point by any team ever. So you're thinking, okay, we're going to get this one. And they lose 19 to 8. It's Wait, I can just imagine the tone of the calls on Sports Talk Radio the yeah. next day. These bums, I'm going to throw myself off a bridge. Yeah. Like, these guys, get rid of them all. Yeah, because that was that was really the last thing you expected, just with how good the Red Sox were. The Yankees were very good, too. But yeah, you're thinking, all right, here we go. It's going to turn. And then it turns into the Yankees who have been around for over a hundred years, the most hits in any playoff game, a Yankee team record for runs. So this just absolute embarrassment blowout. And then if you're okay, if we, you know, we really get into it, then there's kind of the, the shift that kind of, then it sort of shifts. And I have to give, there's this great clip of Kevin Millar talk. Kevin Millar was a player on the Red Sox, not one of the star players, but in terms of popularity, just talkative, great voice, great accent, talkative, talkative, engaging guy. And there's a clip of him talking to Dan Shaughnessy, who was the famous local reporter for the Globe at the time. I think he's still there. Don't quote me on that. Well, let me tell you, don't let us win today. Okay. Then we got PE tomorrow. We got Shell Game 6. Okay, that's a start. Game 7, anything can happen. We can can have you out there. I'll put you a second base. You know, game seven, anything can happen. Dan Shaughnessy hitting ninth. Then you can take that fraud comment back, and then we'll be in the World Series. This is it. Don't let the Sox win this game. And um, what's cool is this is recorded before game four. So he didn't say this after the fact. He said it when they were down 0-3. Going into game four, speed up a little bit. Ultimately... Like I said, that's bottom of the ninth, the last inning, down 0-3 in the series, down a run against statistically the best playoff pitcher in the history of baseball. And here it is. And this is where the movie script seems like seems like such a cliche, but it happened. That guy Millar, he gets on base, pinch runner Dave Roberts, who's the manager for the Dodgers, steals. Bill Miller gets a hit. They tie it up. 
And this is kind of where David Ortiz really started to make become who he was. He was already having a lot of success that year, but that was the year where in that game, it goes to extras. He hits a walk-off home run, but you're still down three to one. <laughs> you're still yeah. down three to one. And let, let me stop for a sec. Would you like me to keep going with the series or dissect any other nuances? No, let's let's keep going. Okay, I, so, I'm in. I'm like, tell me, I'm <laughs> let's just, keep the story going. I, I'm just feeling the pressure of people saying, oh, you forgot that detail. You forgot that pitch. <laughs> you forgot that inning. So please forgive me. I know there's, like I said, there's an entire documentary about just those four games. <laughs> so game four, you're down one in the ninth. You manage to come back. David Ortiz hits the walk-off home run in the, in the 12th inning. This is at Fenway, of course, because a walk-off home run can only happen at home. Okay, you're still down three to one. Like you're still in kind of a kind of a tough spot. Quick shout out, Curtis, uh, Curtis Lascanic was kind of a very lower uh, relief pitcher for that 04 team. I believe he technically got the win in Game Four, and that was the last his last appearance ever ever in the pros. <laughs> he probably didn't know it at the, at the time, but it wound up yeah. being that. So, so you go into Game Five, you're still down three to one in the series. So you still have to win three in a row, and it kind of here we go again. This time you're in the eighth inning. So you're not you're not the last inning, but you're in the eighth. And they're down two in the eighth. So you're still in a pretty tough spot. Ortiz, it's a home run to make it a one-run game. It literally felt like you're just watching a replay of what happened. So they tie it up in the eighth. It ultimately goes to the 14th inning, where it became the longest playoff game ever in history. So this is where the cliches are just so absurd. There's all this buildup. And you have the most runs in any playoff game ever. You have the longest playoff game ever in history. <laughs> and then um, Ortiz is kind of the hero again. Hits it, to, hits it to center field, just a little bloop. So now you're down three to two. But it goes back to Yankee Stadium. And you're thinking, okay, that was a nice little, nice little run. But we still, have two more, we still have two more to go. And now we're going to New York, where home field advantage. There was a little side, side note. Press conference during this time. I think during the regular season where the Yankees had beat Pedro Martinez, who during his prime is truly one of the best of all time, but the Yankees had gotten to him. And in this press conference, he was like, I don't know what to say. I just, you know, tip my hat or something and call the Yankees, my daddy. <laughs> so of course the crowd, you know, later in the series, more so whenever he's in the game is chanting, you know, who's your daddy <laughs> to, to Pedro, but he kind of brought it upon himself. So we've won game four, one game five, game six. So now it's back to Schilling, who beat them in 2001 with the Diamondbacks. But he has the, the big thing that you can't leave out with this game is that it's the bloody sock game. He had a suture put on his ankle the day of the game, and he's bleeding through his sock. And some people some people say, oh, it's fake blood. He put that there. I'm pretty sure it was real. I, I sure hope it was. And But you have this older, in the, in the realm of professional sports, older pitcher with an injured ankle. <laughs> in a must-win game, and somehow he just pulls it off. He he has this unbelievable game. Touching upon kind of those, those karma points real quickly, there were just all these little things where it was like the Yankees seemed to be the ones doing the things that felt wrong. You know, the Red Sox were doing the things that felt right. What I mean by that is later in the game, Schilling came out, relief pitcher comes in, Bronson Arroyo. It's a little dribbler down the line. A-Rod, the star player, Red Sox pitcher goes to tag him. A-Rod just slaps it, just slaps the guy's glove, which you can't, you can't do. And there's a million cameras. It's clear as day that this clearly did something they're not supposed to do. But he's trying to say, like, no, I was in my natural, because it's funny, 
video of him showing I was doing my natural running motion. And it's so clearly not that. And remember it being a good feeling of oh, the Yankees are the bad guy. Now they're not just the bad guys because we, because we're the losers and they always win. They're actually doing things that they don't deserve to win. They don't deserve they're, to They're win. getting a little villainous. They're, yeah. they're, they're it, getting into their villain era to use the parlance of our time. Yes. Yes. So that's a very good way. Very good way of putting it. And even the announcers, when they watch the replay, they're like, oh, no, no, that's not a natural running motion. And then the umpires got it right. They changed. And that hit, had it, had they not called it like the slap, it was kind of a moment in the game where the Yankees would have had a comeback. I think it would have scored a run or two. But the umps get the call right, and they call him out. So it just felt like another shift. I think things are going right. I think things are going right. And ultimately, the Red Sox win that game. And like Kevin Millar said, you know, you have PD in game five, Schilling was game six. And then, and then yeah, then here you are going to game seven. And, but now the, the momentum has fully shifted and, and now we've won three in a row. And I will say in terms of a, from a dramatic perspective, game seven didn't have the drama because mm-hmm. the Red Sox actually won pretty big, you know, Johnny Damon had a grand slam early in the game. So in terms yeah, my of my husband like, the other day was like, we were talking about this episode and he's like, Oh, the Johnny Damon grand slam. Yeah. I, I do remember. You know, as much as you still had to win the win the World Series, as much as it's it is more satisfying to win the tight games, and um, I can't believe like how much this is still in there from so long. <laughs> it was kind of a nice exhale to be like, ah, okay, one relatively easy game. There was some drama at the end, like the Red Sox brought in Pedro, which made Ed a, as a relief pitcher, which mm-hmm. made no sense whatsoever because he wasn't a relief pitcher. Um, and there was a little bit of drama with the Yankees coming back, but for the most part. They had the momentum, and it was kind of a relatively, you know, there was no extra innings. There was no lo- losing in the ninth inning. There was no losing in the eighth inning. There was no grizzled veteran with a suture on his bleeding ankle having to win the game. It was a relatively smooth game, and I believe Derek Lowe started that game. So I hope I did it justice. I know I probably didn't. <laughs> I probably forgot. No, I'm, so I'm riveted. I mean... Having just lived through some excruciating playoff baseball, I just, I mean, I can, I can, I can feel it. I mean, this is going to get to my next question, which is, was the World Series anticlimactic? I didn't even realize till I looked back at this that they swept the Cardinals. But yeah, like when you're talking, when you think back to the 04 win, do you even think about the World Series? Are you really just thinking about the ALCS? You know, I would say definitely anticlimactic in the sense of the Red Sox actually never even trailed at any point in the four games ever. <laughs> really? at, at one or two points, it was tied. Like I think game one, it was tied like nine to nine, but they never actually even trailed at any point in the four games. So does a part of me wish they could have won on some epic, dramatic <laughs> uh, walk-off home run at Fenway? Yes, yes. Yeah, that was... Yeah, I know. They lose on the road, and it's like a little bit of a dud. Like, when you watch the footage of them, I mean, any time a team clinches on the road, it's just kind of a... Yeah. You know, it's a silly analogy, but, you know, when you're a little kid, and, you know, we did Hanukkah and Christmas, but I remember the feeling sometimes as a kid and Christmas when you're done opening your presents, and you kind of have a little bit of that letdown feeling of you're happy, but, oh, it's over. But then you have the next morning when you go down, and you're like, oh, wait, now I can use all my all my toys and my games and my trucks and video games. So I remember the world series itself, a lot of the, not the winning, but some of the games having a little bit of that feeling of, okay, there wasn't the explosion of some crazy win, but then going to the parade in Boston where something like 3 million people were at it. And then at Christmas where just Christmas was Red Sox, trash barrels, Red Sox hats, Red Sox sweatshirts, (laughs) Red Sox t-shirts, Red Sox. So again, 
you know, we were of the age. I was 18. My yeah. brother was 21, where he was actually studying abroad during all of this in college. And he very strongly considered flying back for the parade and then flying back to Europe. He didn't do it, but he like he very strongly. So that's how crazy this was back then. But I would say it was a bit of a letdown. But then kind of basking in it <laughs> after the fact, watching the highlights, watching you know the DVDs at the time. And then the gifts around the holidays and the parade. The parade was, I know it's so cliche, but you literally, I'm not making this up, seeing old, older people you know, crying and, you know, they're with their son or daughter, with their grandson, their granddaughter. And that's why I really think the 04 season was just so, so different because it had been so long. The other teams has had some success in the sense of in the previous, you know, 30 years, but the Red Sox hadn't. So for anyone who had kind of that familial you know, connection with their mom, dad, grandpa, neighbor, un- uncle, aunt, it was such a long wait. And then the parade day was not a nice day. It was a gross day out. But once it started, it was it was definitely an experience. I still <laughs> remember exactly where I was watching it when I walked by that spot right by the Boston Common. It, I still think about it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I can relate in the sense of being a very big Eagles fan my whole life. And when they won in 2017, I can't remember. Who did they beat? Do you remember yeah. who they beat? Well, I will say this. I think <laughs> I think if the Patriots defense had had one stop or wanted the whole game, Patriots, I think the Patriots had the best <laughs> offensive game in the history of any Super Bowl, but the defense had one of the worst. <laughs> but um, there. Literally one of my favorite memories for my whole life. Like I will be on my deathbed and I will be like, remember that time that Tom Brady dropped that quarterback option in the Super Bowl? <laughs> anyway. And then the I'm Eagles quarterback caught a similar play. Yeah. Well, I mean, right. That's the later. thing with the Philly special or whatever is it's not as good if you don't have Brady dropping the one before. Right. right. I'm recording an episode on the Belichick Brady Patriots in a couple weeks. And I it's funny because this Red Sox stuff, I'm watch I'm listening to this like you're telling me like a story from long ago and it's riveting, but I have no real I mean, I'm an I'm a Phillies fan, we're an NL team. We've never played the Red Sox in a big right. game. I feel very differently about the Brady Belichick Patriots. Yeah. I fucking hate them. I you know it's funny because I, I hear I get it from an outside perspective how they are sort of what the Yankees in the nineties Yes. Were. But you also have to remember, I'm sorry, I don't mean you, but in general, just in the sense of people who were in Boston, you know, at the time. Yes, the Patriots had won two Super Bowls, but the Red Sox hadn't won any. The Celtics hadn't won it in 08. The Bruins hadn't won it in 2011. And the Patriots weren't hated yet. <laughs> you know, when they won it the 2001 season in, you know, January or February of 2002, they were the underdog. You know, not to, you know, it was after September 11th, and the underdog team called the Patriots with the red, white, and blue. Everyone was rooting for them in that in that first one, and then they won it two years later, beating the Panthers. Who did they beat? No one. So the St. Louis Rams, St. Louis Rams, okay. and then so this is before they beat your Phillies in you know January, February of '05. Um, oh, I was a senior in college. I remember yeah. quite clearly. I feel like we can't even get too deep into this because no, we're going to be retreading I, it. I, in I a couple, I'm going to be retreading. I'm going to be reliving my nightmares, and then my ultimate glory in a few weeks. <laughs> yeah. So I just, I mean, I remember the feeling of like, you know, the, it was the Eagles, their first ever Super Bowl win. You had people who were like, my father died, never having seen them right. win. And just the outpouring of emotion. I watched with all of my siblings. I went down to Broad Street afterwards, you know, the sense of release. And and this gets to my next question, yeah, which is, so I, I remember someone saying, oh, if they're going to win again next year and it's going to be even better. I was like, what are you talking about? This is the apex. It's never getting better than this. I'm yeah. sorry. It is never getting better than this. They Last year, I don't want to talk about that pass interference call. Anyway, the last year, like if they had won, I, I flew down to Philly to watch the game. I was oh, right. very excited. 
I still think it just nothing can compare to breaking through and that like first moment. So my next question, which was in my discussion guide is, so then the Red Sox won in 07, they won in 2013, they won in 2018. Was it like, was it as good? I would say I, I have to, I have to agree with you as much as it's fun to kind of gloat now and the Patriots and all the teams winning and yeah, the Red Sox have won it all those other times. I can't speak for everyone else, but I, I really feel like if you, if people had to pick one, it was different in 2004. It just was because they didn't just win it. You know, when the Patriots beat the Rams, yeah, they were the underdog and that was great. But Red Sox, first team ever down 03, beating the Yankees who had knocked you out the year before, haven't won it in 86 years. I'm sure there's tons of people whose grandparents never saw it happen. And I know it's just sports. I know, but there are those connections, especially in childhood watching where it does matter. 2013 had a bit of, um, just to give a little bit of story there. So the Red Sox, you know, just in their division. In 2012, 2014, and 15 were last place in their division. <laughs> so 12, 14, 15, last place. Somehow dropped in there in 2013. It was the year of the Boston Marathon bombing. Somehow they go and win the World Series that year, <laughs> a few months after the marathon bombing. So that didn't have the same in terms of the Red Sox aspect. Yeah. Uh, impact of the 04 team. But there was, I always thought you know, poetically that had a nice, yeah. nice feeling to it of last place. Win the World Series after the marathon bombing. Last place, last place. It just felt like. <laughs> and I think they stopped either during the parade or at some point, you know, the, the celebration parade at the marathon finish line and put the trophy there. And um, and I, I know it's sports, but it, it does. It's, it is one of those things that brings people together more. And, you know, there's music. There's art, of course. Um, but I would say 04 has to take the cake. I would say if the Patriots had gone undefeated that year, <laughs> that they were 18-0 and and lost to the Giants, <laughs> that might be a uh, I'm married to a Giants fan, so Giants-Yankees. <laughs> and that he was in college when that happened, yeah, and it's too. probably like the greatest moment of his entire life. Yeah, if, they, if the Patriots had pulled that off, that might, oof, that might surpass the 04 Red Sox. But I don't know. Yeah, I would say... And something I thought about, I really appreciate you having me on here. And I was kind of debating in my head of, okay, how, what can we talk about where we'll appeal to someone who doesn't care about the sports aspect? They, how can they stay engaged? But there was the other voice in my head of, no, 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 the diehards, they want to hear it. <laughs> they want to, they want to hear every detail, every nitty gritty detail. But I think it is important for the former group. That's the part I was kind of struggling with more because sometimes I am that person now when I see 10 hours of NFL coverage on TV. I'm just like, go do something else with your day sometimes, you know? <laughs> so I, I reached out to some family members who were older and said, hey, can you help me with why it was different? And uh, I think the best, my, my dad's sister, so they grew up in Brighton. Her husband grew up in Revere, so near here. But my whole life, they lived in Portland, Oregon. They had moved there, I think, in the 80s. So my whole life of knowing them, they were in Portland, Oregon. But they grew up in Revere. They grew up Brighton. And he would, it's funny, he, you know, PhD, University of Michigan, a college professor at Portland State, and, you know, nice house, you know, piano, nice artwork in the house. But there was this room that was just like the baseball shrine. <laughs> and it was so <laughs> funny to see this, you know, learned, fam, you know, cultured family and just so nice, so friendly. And he had this room with his Ted Williams autographs. And I want to say maybe Mickey Mantle. It was just, I, I remember even as a kid, thinking, wait, what? He has a baseball room and he's this, you know, successful adult and adult still has this. And sadly he passed away in 2000. So when I reached out to my aunt, um, I knew she'd be a good person to talk to about you know, why does it mean more? And, you know, there's someone who, you know, they didn't live, he hadn't lived in Boston for 30, you know, 20, 30 years. And 
you know, yeah, he's not the person going to the sports bar and, and watching every single game anymore, maybe. But she said, you know, after they won in 04, multiple friends reached out to her and said, mm-hmm. oh, man, Shelly, Michael's name was Shelly. He would have he would have loved this, just how much he would have loved it, how much they know it would have meant to to him and to everyone who has a story like that. You know, I'm just one person with one uncle with that story. Everyone has a story. I'm surprised actually moving now all of a sudden moving away. I mean, I lived I went to college away from Philly and then I lived in Nashville for several years and I used to go every Sunday and like watch the Eagles games with other transplants yep. you know my friend Eric who, who was a Saints fan and so we would go and we would like let's get a place where we can sit and we can watch the two TVs where I can see the Eagles game and he could watch the Saints game and now being here I it's like almost amplified my fandom it's this way of feeling connected um, I think it's also just been a funny thing that all the teams have been very good though they keep losing in you know, the Super Bowl and the World Series, et cetera. Yeah. Um, I just ponied up money for an NBA like season pass, yeah. which I just never thought. I mean, when I lived in Philly, I never watched right. the games, but I just, I don't know. I'm like excited about this team. And I have this one other friend, a friend's husband here. Hi, Joe Mullen. I don't know if you ever listen to the podcast, <laughs> who's another Philly sports fan. And we like, we can watch the Phillies games together and we are sharing this NBA league pass, nice. <laughs> sharing the cost. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, it's funny. I, I find nowadays, um, you know, I don't watch as much anymore, but I find I, I, I do, whether it's art, music, sports, track and field, literature, I, I, I'm always fascinated by anyone who's great at what they do, like truly, mm. truly great. And I know plenty of people probably, probably don't care about hockey, but similar to what you just said, <laughs> I bought ESPN plus, this is so embarrassing just to watch the Edmonton, Edmonton Oilers hockey games, because they have this player. Connor McDavid, who you know, he'll never catch Gretzky in terms of the numbers. Wayne Gretzky, who is his numbers are absurd. But a lot of you know people who really know hockey say, you know, skill wise, he might, he might, might skill wise be the best of all time. So I just oh wow, it's it's hockey, it's just sports. I know, I know. <laughs> I find the darker the world is, the more I'm like listening to sports talk radio because I just I need to put my brain there. I need the stakes to be very low in a way but high in an emotional way i don't know it hits it it does something you know i i know i know what you mean my mom is similar she's diehard news person has the news on all day every day but she says she's like you know sometimes i just love putting on sports radio she's like i feel like i'm hanging out with you guys when you were teenagers um so i had a last question on here about the movie fever pitch yeah. which i i i don't why i'm just obsessed with the idea that they had to rewrite the ending of this yeah, movie yeah i don't know if you know about this if you've seen the movie mm-hmm. Any thoughts? Yeah. So I think at that time, so Jimmy Fallon had been on Saturday Night Live, of course, before, but there was this mm-hmm. recurring sketch. Um, yes. You know, Noma. You know, the kids in the basement, yeah. right? And he would be like, Noma, they'd be making out. And it was. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it was him and Rachel Dratch. Oh, where's she from? I want to say either Lexington or Burlington. And uh, I think Jimmy Fallon's from, shout out to Socrates, New York. <laughs> um, but they had this recurring sketch where, you know, the Boston and I've don't do a good Boston accent, but Noma. And I think Nomar Garcia Parr even made a, um, a cameo at one point on Saturday Night Live. So everyone kind of liked that sketch. So it kind of made sense that he was in the movie. I would say the two, the two things I take away. One part in the movie that I kind of cringe at a little bit is when, you know, Drew Barrymore has a ticket to Paris and he basically to go with him. And he says no because of the Red Sox. I remember in that moment being like, dude, like kind of turning on his character a little bit of thinking, like, yes. get your priorities straight here. Come on, come on, dude. Whereas like in Goodwill Hunting, 
Robin Williams's character has a ticket to the big game and he tells the whole story of the game. And then Matt Damon says, I can't believe you had tickets to the game. And he said, I was at the game. I was at, I was at a bar having a drink with my future wife. <laughs> so mm-hmm. his prioritization. But I will say there's one particular joke just in Fever Pitch that I always, my brother and cousin especially, always chuckle at because it reminds me of our thinking probably at the time. When you know, Drew Barrymore has his ticket to go to Paris with him and he basically says, oh, I got to be at the Sox game. And she gets all mad. She's like, you don't care about going to Paris with your girlfriend and you know waking up and looking at the Eiffel Tower. You're concerned about the Sox because Pedro is pitching. Schilling is pitching on Friday. And he just quickly goes, oh, Pedro Saturday. Schilling's on Friday. <laughs> like, <laughs> and it's such a silly little half-second thing. But I remember that being one of the little jokes. I kind of chuckled at mostly in the movie. I would say overall, I liked it. I was okay with it. It's, it's fun. Yeah. It's you know, a little corny, but it, it's fun. Yeah, so for people who don't know, this movie was written to be about the Red Sox. They always lose, and they lose at the end, and then all of a sudden, they had to rewrite the ending of the movie. And it's if if I actually went back and I just watched the last five minutes because I was trying to remember, and they it feels very thrown together. But it's like, and then they actually win, and like here's a montage. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think it's based on. I want to say there was a soccer movie because they called it soccer based field on the a soccer. Pitch. Movie. I've never seen that one, mm-hmm. but yeah, exactly. I haven't either. Yeah, it was just coincidence. They happened to be filming it the year this all this all came together. Yeah, I don't know if it's a better story or a worse story with them. You know, I kind of like things that have a little bit of a melancholy note. It might have been a better movie, but it's, it's cute, I guess. Yeah, I, my, my cousin, the, the daughter of my uncle, you know, passed away in 2000. She had shared a similar sentiment, and you know, there was something great about, you know, rooting for the underdog and how there is something great about that, you know, know. <laughs> and about not accomplishing your goal, you know, the journey and yeah. not accomplishing it. <laughs> okay, so... Do you have any Philadelphia questions for me? Yeah. So my sister-in-law, I hope I'm saying it right, is from Narberth. Narberth? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And I reached out to her. I said, oh, can you, can you help me out with this one? And she mentioned, you know, the Philly uh, Marathon was recently. And obviously the Boston Marathon is a huge deal here. I know you did an episode on it. Um, I was curious, outside of the things people know, you know, sports teams, Liberty Bell, Rocky, Pats, Geno's, what's kind of a cultural event in Philly, the way the marathon is here, that is a really local thing that people love and you, you really feel like it's, it's Philly's own thing. I have a good answer for that. And I'm going to take sort of the easy way because this is actually a road race. It's called the Broad Street Run. And it's a 10-mile race. Huh. It starts all the way north and Broad Street. And then it ends down at the stadiums. And it's a huge thing every year. My brother has run it. My brother always like, he's like, I haven't run in months, but he'll just sign up and he'll run it and then like spend the rest of the day on the couch. Um, And that's a huge, really nice annual tradition, the Broad Street Run. I mean, Broad Street in general, just having this artery that is like so central to the grid of the city. I mean, to contrast Philly and Boston, like we have a grid, it's sensical, it, you know, it's easy to get around. I can't Uh, hit on you for saying that about Boston. There's no, other than back (laughs) in the day, there's basically no grid. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know. They run down Broad Street. Broad Street, obviously, like huge connection for our sports fans. When we win, we go to Broad Street. We climb poles. We revel. We drink. We live in fear of people who are out of control. My older brother almost got in a fight after the Eagles thing because someone like accidentally tapped him in the balls. It was was like, everyone calm down. That's about right. (laughs) That's it for this episode of Explain Boston to Me. Thank you to Tyler for chatting with me. As always, if you have any thoughts on this episode or ideas for topics I should add to my growing list, hit me up on Instagram at explainbostontome or email me explainbostontome at gmail.com. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, talk us up at Thanksgiving, and subscribe so you never miss an episode. The key art is by Melissa McFeeders. The bed music is by Dylan Gottlieb. Until next time, I'll just be over here thinking about Pedro Martinez 
throwing an elderly man to the ground. 